So this is a continuation of the talk I began <clears throat> the other night on the uh, seeing our practice, our insight practice, as a process of initiation. And we talked about the first two stages of this initiatory experience of being with suffering and discovering our what it means to be alone in our uh, efforts to know the deeper meaning of life and what we are doing here. Tonight I will explore with you more the last two stages, which is that of the seeing through the illusory nature of what we call self, emptiness, and the courage to care, the quality of compassion that, cult- that gets cultivated in that seeing that we then bring back into the world with us. I'd like to begin tonight with a story that many of you probably have already heard. It's a Nasruddin story. And it's the story of Nasruddin uh, looking for his, looking for something out in front of his house under the street lamp. And some friends come along and they say, oh, Nasruddin, what, what are you looking for? And he said, well, I lost my keys. So they all say, well, we'll help you. We'll look with you. And so they're all looking for Nasruddin's keys. And after a while, not finding the keys, they said, well, where did you lose the keys? And Nasruddin said, well, I lost them inside my house. They said, well, why are you looking out here? Because there is more light. And that is one version of the story. I'd like to share with you another version of the story, which is a version that um, Lawrence Schoenberg tells. He shared this story with his Zen master. And his Zen master had an interesting take on this story. You know the story about Nasruddin and the key? Schoenberg asked his master. Nasruddin, the Roshi replied. Who is Nasruddin? (laughs) It's not in the Zen tradition. After Schoenberg described the story to him, his master appeared to give it no thought. But sometime later, the Roshi brought it up again. So, Larry-san, what is Nasruddin saying? The Zen master questioned his disciple. I asked you, Roshi. Easy, he said. Looking is the key. (laughs) Two different versions of the same story. One looking in the wrong place when we've lost something. We've all had this experience, I'm sure. We lose something and it doesn't matter. We're looking all over the place for it, hoping by some miracle it'll be found. And looking is the key. We could say that this entire retreat situation is meant to keep you looking. The sitting, the walking, the silence, the stillness, the instructions, the slow pace, all of it is designed just to keep you looking. (laughs) One of my first uh, Zen Zen experiences 
I mentioned one the other night. This was another one. Uh, I was very inspired by Zen practice, and I met some wonderful teachers. So I don't want to give an erroneous impression, but there was one place I practiced where the only instruction that was given and it would be given incredibly enthusiastically and very loudly at the beginning of every sitting period was the instruction, die on the pillow. <laughs> die on the pillow. Now, I kind of got that it was important, and I kind of got that I really would like to do this, but I, of course, had not a clue what to do. It just made me very nervous and tense, mostly. <laughs> I didn't know how to look or what I was looking for. <clears throat> Last night, Jack talked about the three characteristics, the not seeing of which keep us bound and the seeing of which can free us. This is part of this initiation into the truth of our existence, our ability to look and to see the truth of these things. Now, tonight I'd like to focus on the third characteristic, anatta, emptiness. We say there is no self. Or sometimes we don't say that. Sometimes we say um, that the Buddha never said there was no self, nor did he say there was a self, which kind of leaves us in the same boat. We don't know. So we may wonder about that. We may really have a lot of questions about that. A Tibetan writer says, It brings no benefit to parrot the examples and statements of others by just saying it is emptiness. For example, people may say that there are not any tigers in a place where they are rumored to be. But you may not feel convinced that this is true. Instead, you may be disturbed by doubts about it. But when you yourself have traced the root of mind and have arrived at certainty about it, It is as if you had gone to a place where tigers are said to live and had explored the whole region from top to bottom to see for yourself if there were any tigers. When you don't find any, you are certain, and from then on have no doubt about whether or not tigers are there. (coughs) So we've had three different stories. One about looking in the wrong place. One about looking is the key. And this one about looking and not finding. What is it that we don't find? We look and we don't find anything solid, substantial, or enduring. Another way to look at this tiger story is to say that we might be afraid to look inside, imagining that we might be overwhelmed or devoured by what we find inside of us. 
Instead, when we look, what we find is a tiger? Or is it only sensations? Perhaps unpleasant, perhaps intense? When we look, is it only some thoughts in the mind, a story? That's all we find. When we really look, no tigers, only sensations, only thoughts, only feelings, emotions. The not finding in this case is the finding. We could say we wake up to the dreamlike and insubstantial nature of our stories. One night a man dreamt that a monster was on his chest, choking him, trying to kill him. The man awoke in terror and saw the monster above him. The man cried, what is going to happen to me? Don't ask me, replied the monster, it's your dream. It is our dream, and we can awaken and see it for what it is. Have you ever had a lucid dream? Perhaps some of you have. In a lucid dream, what wakes up? It's not really the characters in the dream that wake up. It's awareness that awakens to itself to the dream, to the characters, to the whole situation of dreaming. The whole thing is known. But not by the little self, but by awareness. The awareness does not want anything from the dream, does not require that the characters behave in a certain way, does not direct the course of the dream does not try to grasp or hold on to the dream. It simply reveals what is present. Sometimes awareness functions in us, it always functions in us, like the space in this room, like the space in this room, allowing everything to be just as it is. Achan Sumedho wrote, Awareness is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of awareness, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is our practice of letting go. Now, there are many moments, actually on retreat or any time in our lives actually, when we are not grasping or resisting. That may be quite amazing news to you, but it is true. There are many moments when there is a spacious allowing of what appears. Just seeing, just tasting, just hearing, just smelling, just a thought in the mind. 
we don't notice these moments. Why? Because they're not about me. They don't seem to be particularly significant or important. The sky is blue. The ground is wet. Many moments when we are simply allowing things to be known as they are. These moments are, I think of them as sort of like characters in a movie that have nothing to do with the main plot. You know, you go to the movies and there's always like extras, but we don't notice them so much because they're not implicated in the main plot. So we don't notice them so much. Just like in our lives, we have many moments that Life is flowing, life is occurring, but we don't notice them because they don't seem to be offering us of anything of significance or import. So a story. This is a story called The Old Man and the River. An old man walked along the banks of a river. He was lost in thought and repeating over and over to himself the same question. What do I want? What do I want? Oh, what do I want? He was so lost in thought that he was unaware of the beauty of the stream flowing past him, nor could he see the butterflies dancing around his shoulders. He came to a bend in the river, and he saw a man sitting quietly there a holy person, a sage. The sage rose and opened his arms to greet the old man. You seem troubled, old man, said the sage. Oh, I've been wandering for many years, sighed the old man, and I am weary. I keep searching for what I want, but I cannot find the answer. Perhaps I can assist you, said the sage. How can you help me, asked the old man. If you are to find the answer, replied the sage, then you must have the right question. So I will listen to the river for the right question for you. Will it take very long, asked the old man impatiently. No, not long, said the sage. And while you are waiting, pay attention to everything that is around you. Listen to the sound of the stream and to the birds singing. Feel the flow of the river. Look at the flowers and the rocks and the trees reaching upwards towards the sky. Be still. Listen to your own heartbeat. Just wait. And so the old man waited and waited. He paid attention to everything around him and everything inside him. Suddenly, the sage stirred. I have your question, he said. The old man turned to hear. I have your question. The question is, the sage pausing dramatically, what do I want? But that's the question I've been asking all along, said the old man. Ask it again now, said the sage. Oh, said the old man, I want nothing. You want nothing, repeated the sage with an amused look upon his face. 
Yes, said the old man, I want nothing, for while I was waiting I saw, I saw already that I have everything. I just haven't been paying attention. And later, this old man wrote a poem, which I will share with you in a little while. As we wait and as we pay attention and as we notice more and more in our experience, the story of me and mine fades away as we look and we see what is true. As we open to this more spacious way of knowing and being present with what is here, Even the play of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that we spoke about the other morning can be known in this way. For example, we may be out doing our walking meditation. Beautiful day. We notice the leaves are green. Neutral thought. The sky is blue. A neutral thought. The breeze is cool. A neutral thought. My feet are cold, a little unpleasant. My hands are warm, ah, pleasant. My jaw is tight, ah, unpleasant. My breath is smooth, ah, pleasant. And then comes the thought, I really hate walking slowly. (laughs) I should like it, I know, it's recommended, but I'm... I just don't like it, and it's probably my negative attitude that's getting in my way, and you know, that's really my problem, and that's really why I'm here, to get over my negativity, because I know it's why no one loves me, and you know, I'm really afraid, I'm just so afraid now in my life, and I think I'm getting sick, and I, oh, I'm just failing at this like I always do. What happened to the sky is blue, the leaves are green? Isn't it interesting how some thoughts, even pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, can be with us, easy, no problem? And then there will be other thoughts that get incredibly sticky and stick to us like flypaper. We can't get away from them. They seem so believable and so true about me. It's an interesting contemplation because the difference between seeing a thought as a thought, the leaves are green, the sky is blue, and getting lost in our thinking is the difference between being free and being bound. As simple as that. They are completely different experiences. When we notice our thinking, there's no problem. It's just thinking. When we believe our thoughts as me and mine, and we seem to particularly believe the tormenting ones, we have the opposite of experience of being quite stuck, being bound, being entangled. 
Many, many years ago, practicing at IMS, there was uh, Joseph's teacher from India was teaching one night, a man named Munindraji, very cheerful, young, uh, cheerful Indian man who could speak for hours, hours and hours. The Dharma just flowed out of him. I remember one time he was going to give a talk on the 92 kinds of silence. That was a bit daunting. But his knowledge was so superb. But anyway, one night he, he um, said something which I have never forgotten, and I've gotten, gone a long way with this teaching. He said, you know, the thought of your mother is not your mother. No thought you could ever have of your mother is your mother. In the same way, he said, the thought of yourself is not yourself. Maybe we can get it about the mother, but can we get it about ourselves when we turn it around in that way? It's an interesting one to play with. There's this interesting... um, Play, we begin to see in practice between the way we think about something and its actuality. There's a something I read. Just because your doctor has a name for your condition doesn't no- mean he knows what's wrong with you. We give a lot of attention to the names of things, and we think that if we have a name for something, we know what it is. Is that true? Things are what they are, and then there are our thoughts and descriptions and labels of them, and they are different. The thought about your pain is not your pain. The thought about who you are is not who you are. There's a wonderful inquiry question which I would like to share with you. Eugene and I play with it back and forth sometime, and he reminded me of it this morning. It's a little inquiry question to take into your practice when you are feeling a little bit caught by something. The question is this, and you might close your eyes right now and just see where it goes in you. Who are you taking yourself to be right now? Who are you taking yourself to be right now? You can open your eyes. You see how that can just jiggle it up a little bit, just stir inside? Because it's pointing to not a self that is true, but a fixation on a story that we tell about ourselves. It's pointing to a little piece of fiction, who we are taking ourselves to be in this moment. There's a saying from the Tibetan tradition, by looking it is seen, By seeing, it is free. It only needs to be seen for what it is. 
We look, we see, and it is free. So part of our practice is this kind of inquiry, looking and seeing what is found and what is not found, looking and seeing how our thoughts create stories and that the actuality of something may be quite different than our story about it. This activity gently wears away our solid sense of identity and the more spacious way of knowing begins to appear, a way in which we begin to see in terms of our relationship with others that we are actually more alike than different from others. This more spacious way of knowing opens us, opens our minds, our attention, opens our hearts. Shantideva wrote, in joy and sorrow all are equal. Meditate upon the sameness of yourself and others. Thus be a guardian of all as of yourself. When we thoroughly know the joys and sorrows and pleasure and pain of our own condition, we know them in everyone. When we think, I'm the only one who's experiencing such a horrible fear, grief, anger, confusion, I'm the only one. This is what creates walls of separation. But when we remember that everyone feels fear in the way that I am feeling fear, everyone feels grief, everyone feels joy, happiness, contentment, everyone knows this human heart When we begin to reflect in this way and use our experience as a way to build bridges of our experience with others, then we are breaking down the walls of separation that often get built based on apparent differences. We are not the same necessarily in terms of our conditioning, in terms of our experience, in terms of our gender, in terms of our age, in terms of our race, in terms of our culture, in terms of our education, but we are same in that we all share the joys and sorrows of human life. The longings, the successes, the failures, the fears, the disappointments, the full catastrophe as Zorba said. The practice of loving-kindness, which we are teaching on this retreat, is very helpful in bringing into our awareness this sense of our connection with others and our equality with others, that there is this basic way in which we are all equal, participants in this journey of being human. Sharon Salzberg writes about a time when she was doing intensive metapractice in Burma. 
through the power of this practice, we cultivate an equality of loving feeling toward ourselves and all beings. There was a time in Burma when I was practicing metta intensively. After I had, I had gone through all the different categories, myself, benefactor, friend, neutral person, and enemy, after I had spent six weeks doing the metta meditation all day long, my teacher, Upandita, called me into his room and said, asked her a question, said, suppose you were walking in the forest with your benefactor, your friend, your neutral person, and your enemy. Bandits come up and demand that you choose one person in your group to be sacrificed. Which one would you choose to die? I was shocked at Upandita's question. I sat there and looked deep into my heart trying to find a basis from which I could choose. I saw that I could not feel any distinction between any of those people, including myself. Finally, I looked at Upandita and replied, I couldn't choose. Everyone seems the same to me. Upandita then asked, You wouldn't choose your enemy? I thought a minute and then answered, No, I really couldn't. Finally, Upandita asked me, Don't you think you should be able to sacrifice yourself to save the others? He asked the question as, as if more than anything else in the world, he wanted me to say, Yes, I'd sacrifice myself. A lot of conditioning rose up in me, an urge to please him, to be right, to win approval. But there was no way I could honestly say yes, so I said no. I can't see any difference between myself and any of the others. That was the correct response. When it comes to human suffering and vulnerability of the human heart, there is no better or worse. We begin to intuit that as we practice. We also begin to intuit in the deepest way possible that the same life or consciousness flows through everything. Nisargadatta when you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, You cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious cycle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it, resolutely. When we know the truth of emptiness as the vast and luminous container of our being, It is said that we enter a stream of being and there is no turning back. At that point, certain beliefs can no longer be held. We see the illusory nature of me and mine 
and the futility of a life based on craving, grasping, and clinging to the pleasant and avoiding and resisting the unpleasant. We see that there is no freedom in that at all. Secondly, we have no doubt that this is true. We are quite convinced of the truth of this. And thirdly, we no longer believe in the rites and rituals of religion as being a means to awaken. So now I'd like to read you The Old Man by the River, the poem he wrote on his awakening. He wrote this. The highest form of prayer is to offer yourself to awareness. Offer your eyes to awareness so that awareness may see the sunset or a flower or a leaf falling gently to the ground. For awareness has no eyes other than your eyes. Offer your ears to awareness so that awareness may hear the sound of a bird singing or the laughter of a child or a frog jumping into a pond. For awareness has no ears other than your ears. Offer your hands to awareness so that awareness may touch the bark of an ancient tree or feel the coolness of the water in a flowing stream. For awareness has no hands other than yours. Everything gets reversed. We discover that we are the eyes and ears and nose and tongue and body and mind of awareness, that it doesn't belong to us at all. When we awaken to that understanding, we are well on our way to completing the third stage of initiation. And we are then free to re-enter the world with a compassionate and fearless heart. The fourth stage of initiation called the courage to care. This is, could be a whole talk in itself and I want to only say a few, a few things that have been sort of meaningful to me in the last period of time. When we look out at the world and we know the suffering that is out there, it can be quite overwhelming. And there was a question asked this morning in the questions about why suffering? Why is there all this suffering? And as Jack said, there really is no answer. But it does seem to me that some of the wisest and most compassionate beings seem to be those who have suffered deeply. The Dalai Lama being one, Thich Nhat Hanh in Vietnam being one, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, I read a quote from Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist of the 19th century. This reminded me of of something that 
we, we talk about as around the Buddha's enlightenment. He said, we have it in our power to convert the weapons intended for our injury into positive blessings. That image that we sometimes see of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment and the arrows of Mara are being shot towards him and they hit his aura and turn into flowers and fall to his feet. This saying reminds me very much of that image. In the grist of suffering, we often find something that we do not find if our life is easy and comfortable. But as I said, sometimes we may feel very overwhelmed by the suffering and we don't know where to turn or, or how to relate. I was teaching a, a class earlier this year on Dharma and deep ecology with a good friend and, and teaching colleague of, my Gwen, of mine, Gwen Gordon. And she said something which I'd like to share with you. Her advice was, give yourself permission to love something. Pay attention to the next time your heart is stirred to act on behalf of another being. And I love this advice because it makes it so doable. Instead of just opening to the world's suffering and there's so many things to feel up upset about or to feel like this must change or we must act or we must respond in some way. Give yourself permission to love something and when your heart is stirred to act on behalf of another being, pay attention and let it be so. We can do that. We can't save everything but we can do that. I've been very inspired by uh, the teachings of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and Sister Chan Kong, who worked with him during the war in Vietnam. And she tells a story of how it was to be in in the villages in Vietnam during the war. She tells a story of one village that was bombed four times. It would be bombed and they would rebuild, it would be bombed again and they would rebuild after four times of the village being bombed. She said, I remember at that time I was very angry, very frustrated. Everything was destroyed. A number of young people who saw the destruction were carried away by their anger. But I knew when you are angry, this does not lead to good action. We have to stop, stop, go back to our breath to restore the clearness of our mind before knowing what to do. So she said, I released the tension and tried to only dwell in the present moment. And at that moment, 
I saw a little flower make her way through all the ruin of all the bombing. There was a little flower still blooming in the midst of all that destruction, and I was truly moved. I could see, oh, the little flower has done her best. Why not me? So I tried to look deeper. I looked around and I saw that there were quite a few angels around in the midst of that ruin, hatred and anger, many good people, including that little flower. I had to do my best to go in the direction of that beauty. I saw that life is not only cruelty and confusion and ignorance, but life also has many heartful people, wonderful people who are trying to do their best. You don't need to see 10,000 flowers in order to see that so much beauty in life is waving to you and saying hello to you. You only need to see one little flower. There's a story of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn. That's another wonderful story of how things can turn in us and we can take a new direction. I heard this story recently. He was an Englishman who became a captain of ships that were importing slaves from Africa to America. He just kind of wandered into this line of work. And at one point during a crossing carrying this human cargo, he came across a book about Christ and he something in this book really spoke to him and something in him awoke. And he knew that he could not continue doing what he was doing. So he turned the ship around and went back to Africa. And out of that, he started writing music and he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, about his own turnaround, you could say. And he gave up being a ship's captain and went and studied in the church and became a priest and wrote hymns for the rest of his life. Not only the hymn came, but a whole new vision of his life path. It's so interesting to me how We never know what situation is going to work on us in a way where something wakes up in that way. I recently picked up this book of Peter Matheson. It's a book called The Birds of Heaven. Maybe some of you have seen it. It really spoke to me. Um, It's about the situation on the planet of cranes, all these flying cranes who have actually lived on this planet for 50 million years. 
That's a long time. And some of these cranes have been at times quite close to extinction. There are 15 different species of cranes, uh, including the whooping crane, which um, flies back and forth between um, Russia and Florida, 2,600-some miles every year. It goes back and forth. At one point in the 50s, the whooping crane was down to like 25 birds. And now it has come back a little bit. There's more. But the thing about the cranes, here they are, these beautiful birds there, you often see them in these um, Japanese prints or um, the, the dance they do when they mate. It's just a, a, quite a beautiful creature. And the people who um, are trying to save these cranes, Peter Matheson being one of them, are called craniacs. <laughs> they have taken their mission so uh, to heart, you know, they're just very fervent about saving these cranes. And one of the interesting things about their mission is that because the cranes fly these great distances, they go to uh, breeding grounds, say, in the remote areas of Siberia where there's a border between Russia and China. And in order to save the cranes, in order to save their habitats, it is necessary for the Russians, the Chinese, the Koreans, the Japanese, all these people who are traditionally, you know, kind of antagonistic towards each other, they have to come together and they have to talk to each other in order to save the cranes. It is also true that these cranes uh, are pointing us to the fact that we are uh, destroying wetlands and that our fate is as much dependent on the presence of these wetlands as the cranes' fate. So the cranes are somehow serving the purpose of bringing people together to talk, of bringing the whole planet's attention to the fate of wetlands. I'm hoping, I'm really rooting for the cranes. There's a wonderful picture. Uh, this is a craniac who has, who's dressed up like one of the cranes. He's in a bird outfit feeding a little baby chick that they tried to um, hatch in a, a research refuge in Maryland. They were trying to hatch some, um, some baby whooping cranes. They've had mixed success with that. But I love seeing this grown man, you know, pretending to be a crane out there. Now, that's really, you know, love. That's what love is, being willing to really commit to uh, letting yourself be as foolish and as courageous as you want to be in this world that we inhabit There's a saying, in the cherry blossom shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. It is my greatest wish for this world that we all live peacefully and happily together under the cherry blossom's shade. So let's sit together for a moment.
Thank you. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society in 1997. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can